walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 68. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. For the third and final time, we set out today from Figeac, France, for Cahors. And while we'll initially follow the GR65 once again, before too long, we'll split from that onto the GR651, otherwise known as the Selle Valley route. Most Selle Valley veterans would tell you that I have saved the best for last, and I can't really disagree with that. The GR65 can lay claim to historic preeminence and some fantastic accommodations, and the Rocamador variant has that spectacular shrine and some thoroughly enjoyable walking. But the Selle Valley offers a landscape beyond anything most pilgrims have encountered, complete with dramatic cliffs, troglodyte villages, medieval fortifications, and prehistoric cave paintings. When I dream of walking, I dream of the Selle Valley. I'm joined to revel in its glory by Carrie Daniels of Sacramento, California. Our biggest challenge as we oohed and awed our way through it was the limitations of language, as we caught ourselves recycling some of the same adjectives throughout. How many different ways can you say stunning and gorgeous and majestic and remarkable? We tried to find out. Walking in the Selle Valley is so great that even talking about walking there results in a contact high of sorts. I was buzzing for hours after Carrie and I spoke, and then I felt the same rush when I was editing this. It's a marvelous place. And that makes me all the more envious of my second guest, Maureen Cashman, who had the opportunity to live in one of the Selle Valley's fantastic villages, Espanyac Santulali, for three years. She describes her time there in her book, Charlie and Me in Valparadis, Charlie being her poodle who accompanied her on the journey. It's the kind of book I've always wanted to read. If you're like me, you sometimes pass through these quaint, small, historic villages and wonder what life is actually like there. Well, Maureen knows, and she tells us all about it. So, good times ahead, as we head into the last of three options for your journey from Fijac to Cahors on the Via Podiensis. I'm speaking with Carrie Daniels of Sacramento, California, USA. Thanks very much for speaking with me, Carrie. What is your background with this route, the Via Podiensis, and what brings you to it? Back again and again. Yeah. <laughs> I had been wanting to do it for some time, and work kept getting in the way of doing a longer, to do it all, I couldn't get the time off work. And I had a project that kept pushing and pushing into summertime. And finally, I had a bit of space. I had about two weeks back in 2018 and decided to just book my ticket. And I went very last minute. I, I booked my tickets on Thursday and was on a plane on Sunday. Wow. I had no books back in 2018. I didn't have an app. I didn't have a book. I truly hadn't spoken French, my high school French and, and college French in 35 years. 
and uh, hopped on the plane and arrived in Lyon and made my way to Le Puy en Valais and just really truly followed the white and red blazes. And you can do it because I did it. <laughs> I can't say that I speak French. I speak some French. I understand more. But as a solo woman out there and just followed day by day the white and red blazes and loved it so much, went just as far as Caen. That was as far as I could go in 2018 and had such a spectacular time. The route is so incredible that I looked for my next opportunity to, to go back for a longer one. And that was that COVID hit and went back in 2021, which was such a spectacular time to go. The world was just opening back up. Mm -hmm. And on the Via Podienza, they hadn't seen Americans in three years. Nope. And that they were so welcoming, so excited to have us there. I went with two friends when I went in 2018 and included the Sele variant, continuing on from Conk and made my way to Cowars, including the Sele variant. And then had such a spectacular time in 2021. I wanted my husband to enjoy it. So we went back in 2022, including the Rocamador variant and the Sele Valley. Nice. Always as I've gotten as far as callers, people joke with me endlessly. Like, are you ever going to finish this thing? And I'm, it's so spectacular. I want those that I go with to experience leaving out of Le Puy en Valais and that first third in, into Conque and, and continuing on. So one of these days I'll make it to the quote unquote end. So <laughs> I'm in no hurry. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. It's spectacular. You aren't going to get bored walking no. through those sections again and again. And I've gone in the end of June was in 2018. So it was a very different climate and the wildflowers were just spectacular. And then I was a little bit worried going in August, the month of August in 2021. I thought, oh, the wildflowers aren't going to be there. They were there. <laughs> the only year we didn't have the wildflowers was going in September last year, but due to the drought that they had had in 2022. But it was still so green and coming from where I live here in California, where August means, you know, dry, just landscape. My friends that came with me were just struck by how green and lush this route is. Even in a drought year. Even in a drought year. Yeah. So we are going to talk about the Sele Valley today, which is one of the three options that pilgrims have when walking between Fijiak and Kaor. It's about 104 kilometers, though there are a bunch of different ways to move that up or down a tick. I've organized it in five days. It's strenuous walking, so it is more difficult than the GR65 in this section. And we're going to go day by day through it. But just up front, what's kind of the elevator pitch for the Sele Valley? In a nutshell, what's the reason to do it? Oh, boy. The cliff walks. Yeah. The forested, you feel like you're walking through Hansel and Gretel's forest. You know, <laughs> the mossy forest that you're walking through. It's just spectacular. And, and all in one day, you can be down in the forest walking these trails. And then just a couple of hours, you're at the top of the cliff. And it's spectacular. And you're looking at the valleys below. It is just a special place. It's hard to put into a nutshell what, what it is. But the little villages that, that exist there, the hospitality that we've encountered, it is a special part of the trip. Absolutely. And you said it's difficult to put in a nutshell, but I think you, you hit a lot of the highlights there. And <laughs> we'll take some time unpacking those as we go day by day. Okay. So the first 
book stage, as I've sorted it, is Fijac to Espagnac, Saint Eulalie. And we talk about Fijac to through the first half of this walk in the GR65 episode, because the GR65 and this route, the GR651, overlap for that first section. So we're mostly going to skip past that. But is there anything that you got to talk about that's important to you in that opening stretch from Fijac to Faisal and just beyond that? Well, Faisal is just so beautiful. It is the entryway into what this whole new segment is going to be. But no, we can pick up from from there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we walk through Faisal, we get a coffee, we go on to Bedoué. Mm-hmm. And that's about the point where the GR651 splits off. So take it from there. Bédoué, what stands out to you en route towards Espanyac? Well, because I've had the opportunity and I tried to list out as I was going through and preparing for this, I went back to back years and I tried to stay in different places Nice in the two years. And so I really hit and I jokingly have said I want to stay at every single place along the way before I'm done with this, which I'll never be done. But I did stay at Gite de Bedigas in Béduère with Nadia and Philippe. I tried to stay, I had such great resources in preparing for this. Bronwyn Perry's guide about where to stay on this section of the route was fantastic. And then Les Hautes Vers Compostelle, which mm-hmm. are those specialty gites that take your experience to the next level where they've identified gites that really want to give you the pilgrim experience. Mm-hmm. And Nadia and Philippe were one of those. So I tried to stay at as many of those gites. But with Bédouer, the important thing there is that's where the GR 651 starts. And there is a signage there. I was afraid I was going to miss it. <laughs> and no, they make it very apparent you're either going to stay on the GR65 or you're going to make the split. And they will tell you, you are no longer on, you know, the <laughs> GR65. You are on the GR651. So that for me is Beduer. Yeah, it's comforting to have that kind of clarity. Yes. And from Beduer, you go into this treed trail and it's a pretty sharp descent because from there, you basically move immediately into the Sele Valley. Right. And before you know it, you are at the river and you are immersed in corn. Yes. And then you are in corn. Yes. The village. Beautiful. (laughs) I actually loved walking through fields of corn, you know, on the trail. And you've got corn in August. You had corn eight feet high, nine feet high on either side of you. Walking through cornfields on your way to corn was just, it was lovely. And corn, when you arrive into corn, you feel like you are in a different place. You are no longer on the GR65. You definitely are on a different route. You mm-hmm. start to see the cliffs yeah. emerge. And where did these come from? All of a sudden, there they are. And that is is really exciting. We stayed in corn in, t- in 2021 at the Gite de la Perole. And what was funny about that is I love to book places that have wonderful food. And we had heard so much wonderful reviews about this place. And the day that we arrived, they had a special event going on and they weren't going to be there. But Mm. they made us our demi-pension meal, prepared it all, put it in the fridge. We had the entire restaurant to ourselves. They said, here's the microwaves. You can heat it up. You can have dinner whenever you want. And we had a spectacular three-course dinner <laughs> that was pre-made for us. Wow. And that was really fun. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, Corn is a village I, I've never stayed in, but I'm always impressed. You kind of have a windy approach through it. 
And then you're up on the upper side of town and there's this little creek that just meanders between the stone walls. There's a shady, grassy hillside to rest in. It's it's a nice little spot. It's a beautiful little creek. And there's a picnic table there that you can sit and rest at. And then as you leave corn, you know, you get into that mossy forest. That's exactly what I was thinking of when you mentioned the mossy forest before is this stretch after corn where it could be the brightest middle of the day and you go in there and the dark just descends upon you. Yes. Yes. Thank goodness the route, you know, it's a wide sort of road that you're dirt road or (laughs) white path that you're walking on because the forest really does enclose in on you. And it's it's sort of tunnel-esque that you're going through some of these portions. And that's where I felt very much like I was in Hansel and Gretel's forest with all of the moss and it was so dark and really both charming and spectacular and, and so different than anything we had seen. And then eventually you emerge into the village of Espanyac Santulali. It's known as Paradise Valley and with good reason. Yes, yes. And we stayed at the Priory there, run by Sabrina and Guy. And what lovely hospitality they offer. Now, one year we stayed last year, and then one year we just stopped for ice cream at the cafe. A great place to refuel Mm -hmm. because if you are continuing on, you have a great big climb um, <laughs> that you'll be doing as you head out of town. And so you'll want to stop, at least rest, get some some provisions, get some food or some fuel in you. We always carried food with us on this section for the entire route, making sure because there wasn't always some of the bakeries and some of the the stores or markets that we had thought would be open were not. So we always carried food with us. And if they had it, then we would certainly go in and have something. But if they were closed, we made sure we had fuel with us as well. But that is a beautiful place to stay. They have the great big carved St. James statue to welcome you into the Priory there. And whether you stay or whether you go on, it's it's just a, a really lovely place along the route. I want to call out what you just said about the broader logistics, that there are not a lot of opportunities to buy groceries along this walk. And so that's worth highlighting that Vijac is your last big proper supermarket for a while. It's also your last chance at a cash machine for a while. Right. And so that's something to be prepared for. If you're not a person who typically gets the demi-pension in your accommodations, this is a stretch where it's good to make an exception. Absolutely. The facilities services are a little bit thinner here but it's also worth it. (laughs) And I always, I specifically, I'm the other type of person that always is looking for (laughs) why wouldn't I want to have these fantastic minimum three course meals made by wonderful chefs that take such pride in what they prepare for you. And so it's one of the favorite parts of the entire route for me is seeing what are we going to get for dinner tonight? (laughs) You never know, but it's always good. It's always good, always fresh, often from the garden or the local market. Yeah. And so the Priory, as you said, it's this old monastic complex. And if you weren't paying attention, it might be possible to pass by and not fully recognize that the cafe is tucked around behind. So you'll come to this tower and you pass under the archway, and you come around to the back of the building, and you will have a cafe with lots of outdoor seating and a big grassy lawn. 
and you have the view of the cliffs immediately above you. It is a spectacular place to spend some time. It really is. It really is. And the first time we came through and we stopped for ice cream there, we didn't realize the cliffs that we were looking at and ooing and aahing over were in fact going to be traversed by us <laughs> just a few <laughs> minutes later. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> so that's the end of the the first stage here. So 26 kilometers if you do it the, you know the way it's organized in most of the books. And for all of the ooing and aahing we have already done, it's understandable if people sometimes get to the end of this stage and think, gosh, I heard so many people talking about the Sele Valley as being spectacular. And it's really nice, but I'm not seeing spectacular yet mm. because from here it kicks it up to a whole other level. Yeah. And so the second stage that we're talking about, Espanyac to Marciac sur Sole, is about 16 kilometers. And as you said, it begins with uphill. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it does, but that uphill gives you this kick up that you were just talking about in the spectacular nature of what's in front of you. As you mount the side of this cliff, as you go up and up and up and up, the views that you have down to the valley below to the cliffs that continue on for miles in front of you that you're, you're seeing the views of these are just spectacular. You're right up against the cliff and you're ducking down sort of in portions to get around it. I mean, the path is very well marked and it's you're not on the side of a cliff. There's no worry whatsoever that you're going to fall off of a cliff for those people who are worried about that. But you are up there and the views of it, the massive nature of these cliffs, if I say it sounds a little crazy, but like the energy from these cliffs that have seen so much history is something special. And then you, of course, start to see the structures built into the side of these cliffs. Yeah, it feels ancient. It does. You know, even if the structures are medieval, it has that ancient feel to it. And as you say, you don't have to go right up to the cliff's edge. You can go up to the cliff's edge if yes. you want. And I do enjoy that moment when you have left Espanyac, you have climbed up onto the cliff, and now the sun is just breaking the cliff top across you on the other side. And you have where you just were in Espanyac, the Priory Complex ensconced in this early morning light. It's just amazing. Oh, to see the Priory, you know, that you were at just a time before and you look how far you've come and then you get such a view of it down below. It feels like you've accomplished something once you're, you're up above and, and looking down. And depending on the weather, it's either shrouded in mist or you've got this great view down. But it's an accomplishment to, to get up there. But what you get in return for that climb up is well worth it. And you're going to have a series of these ups and downs over the next couple of days. And this is your first because it's about four kilometers from Espanyac to Brong, which is a very small village along the way. And so you go up and then back down into the village. Yes. And then up and then back down. <laughs> There's a cafe that I, yes. I think that you had mentioned, or a market cafe. It's always been closed when we've gone through, which is such a pity. 
because it has such wonderful reviews, but we haven't yet been able, we went down the first year and we were, we were really looking forward to it. But I think it was like 2.30 in the afternoon and they were closed by that point. <laughs> There's a bakery there as well, if you time it right. So yeah, so much is about timing. Yes, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it does require a very small detour to go into the middle of the village yes. and the facilities. But it's just four kilometers in and it's a short day distance wise, though it's a lot of work. Yes. So it's good to be able to top off the water while you're there and you know take care of those things. And then you are back towards the cliff. Right. And you're heading towards Saint-Sulpice. Oh, we stayed in Saint-Sulpice in 2021. It was Le Champ de la Falice, mm -hmm. I think, and it was recently reopened. It was very special to stay in this place because at the time we understood that there wasn't any place to stay. And I was able to track down through, I don't remember how, that this place had just recently reopened under new ownership. And we felt really lucky to stay. It was a charming place, quite basic, had a dry toilet. That was something that I had not experienced before. <laughs> Sawdust is your friend. But the the actual accommodations were just fine. And it was just special to stay in San Sulpice. In the middle of all of this and the views out to the river and the valley below to be staying there in the in, at a place in the clifftops was really special. Yeah. Describe what you mean by all of this for San Sulpice. What's going on there? Oh, gosh, did I say all of this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we stayed there, uh, we'd come in in the late afternoon, and it was thinking it's one of the first villages that was built into the side of the cliffs. Mm -hmm. And that is just indescribable, but sort of, of, of magical to think that they had built this little community, this little village with these structures that are built right into the cliff. And you're looking at the engineering of these and wondering how long they've been built, but it's just pretty magical to see. And as I said, for us to stay in, even though it wasn't perhaps as, as lush as some of the other accommodations that we had stayed in, we felt very lucky to be there. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's real when you first walk through there. Mm -hmm. And there are two things happening structurally. You mentioned the Chateau d'Anglais. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there are these old fortifications that were built into the cliffside during the Hundred Years' War. So these little fortifications that you encounter at different points along the way. And then there is the actual village itself with what are called troglodyte houses, where you have the entrance to the house that looks like a house, but it is just directly up against the side of the cliff as you walk through. This is one of the, the two best stretches for that, where you are walking through a, a community that is built right into the side of the cliff. And the Chateau d'Anglais, you see that prior to coming into town, mm -hmm. you go through the archway or the doorway, the gate, and you feel like you're in a different time from centuries before. It's unlike anything that I had ever seen when I went by there for the first time. And it was no less magical when I came through it the next year. It doesn't get old. No, no, it does not. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you, you eventually have to tear yourself away and you have another good sharp uphill to navigate 
And this time, instead of being right on the cliff top, you go inland a bit, deeper into Kos, some scrubby trees, stone walls, as you navigate the interior en route to Marciac. Oh, Marciac. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I love about this route, this special little variant, is that every single day, you think you've seen the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, but every single day of this route gives you a surprise and just gets better and better and better. There is no disappointment. You think you can't top it. And then, you know, the next day you just, again, superlatives, you run out of them as you Mm -hmm. try to describe it. And Marcelac is just fantastic. People may not love the descent. No. But (laughs) once you're there, I, I will say there's truth to what you said. It keeps getting better. But for me, Marciac is my favorite. Is it? Yeah. I love that town. You have the ruins of the old medieval abbey in the center. And there's something about those ruins that is even more evocative than a fully intact complex. Just the crumbled remains that you pass through and route to the, the surviving church. You have a perfect little riverside section. You have a fantastic bakery. Yes, And and, I mean, everything about it, I just find to be fantastic. I love being there. I um, am an hospitalera on the Camino Frances at the old ruins of San Anton. Okay. And so when I see the Abbey Saint-Pierre in Marcelac, I immediately think of the ruins of San Anton on the Camino Frances in Spain. So very special connection there. I'm always surprised when I go into the church and and see how stunning it is because you've got the ruins outside but the church inside is such a surprise yeah now this is also where if you want for the next day (laughs) you can take a kayak or a canoe from marcelac to your next destination have you done that i've done both the first year we and when we went in august the river was high enough and so we kayaked from Marcelac to Cabrerais, 21 kilometers. And then last year, the next year, we it, the river was way too low with the drought and it being September at this point. So we didn't even have that as an option, which I'm so glad because I honestly cannot tell you which of the two options I liked more. I love the idea of doing the kayak, but I can't skip that walk. I think if I did it, I would have to kayak down and then bus back and still walk. Because you are like, why can't they have the kayaks on an ugly stretch of walking? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know when we went in 2021 and we did the kayaking, I was all in. It was something so interesting and so fascinating. And to see the cliffs and to see the area from the river was incredibly special. And you're going under these old Roman bridges and they have beaches in Soliac that you can pull up to. And if it's summer season, they have little snack shacks for the people that are visiting the beaches in that area. So you can pull your kayak up and you can have lunch or we brought our kayaks. Passion Adventures, which you can get right there in Marcelac. They have these great big barrel containers that you can put your day pack in. They will take your, your full pack to the ending destination where you get off. So you don't need to worry about your your pack, but if your lunch and water and stuff, they have these big barrels to keep them dry. 
So when I went in 2021 and we kayaked it, it was incredibly special. Oh boy, it's just a way to see things. To get up your feet, you mm-hmm. think you're getting a quote unquote rest for the day. Kayaking 21 kilometers is not a rest. If you haven't been kayaking, my arms, my shoulders were pretty sore at the end of that stage. But you have these wonderful shoots. I think there's two or three of them. And it's sort of like, going on a Disney ride on the log ride as you go, you have to position your kayak to the, the, the gateway. And then you go down the chute and they assumed that we all knew what we were going to be doing <laughs> as we did this great fun though. And a warm weather, a nice way to see the countryside at river level, but you don't know what you're missing. And I didn't know what I missed until the next year when I walked it. And it wasn't an option because the river was too low. And they won't run the kayaks or the canoes if the river's too low. So I did have to mention one of my favorite places as far as eating is right there at the Passion Adventures Au Pied feet in the water. It's a little cafe right on the river there. And you are amongst in the woods, on the deck, watching the people get into their kayaks and some of the best food sitting outside that I had on on the route. So I wanted to do a shout out um, and open seasonally, obviously. Yeah, of course. And if you're lucky, you know, there's so much variation that comes up in terms of market days, what you happen to land on as you walk. This last year was the first year that I've been in Marciac on a market day. Mm. And it was just a fabulous experience, not just because of the market itself where you can buy, you know, food and trinkets and whatever, but because it brought people in from the surrounding villages. And then they just stayed through the afternoon, like the actual vendors shut down. But then you had all of these people lounging on the grassy banks of the river, a musician playing. You watched the sunset over the cliffs. It was just marvelous. I love market days. It is something special to be in town on market day. It changes the energy and the vibe of a sleepy little village. And you see all these people and you imagine what this really was like hundreds Mm -hmm. of years ago when this was a meeting place for all of the communities in the area. Absolutely. So that's the end of the second stage. The third stage, which you can go through by kayak or on foot, (laughs) Marciac to Cabaret about 18 kilometers and similar flow to the previous day you're heading out with an uphill and before long you are looking back at where you were just sleeping Mm -hmm. and again you don't think that any day can get more beautiful or more spectacular than the last until this day and I didn't know what I was missing when I saw it via kayak or via river level and I was a little bit worried because the elevation of this section is huge. Mm-hmm. You're, you are going up and then you are going back down and you are going back up. And so it was a little bit intimidating, but like every other day, take it a step at a time. We get it in our heads of what we can't do. I don't think I can do that. You can do it. It's just mm-hmm. a step at a time. You do it at your own pace, in your own time. You rest when you need to. And at this point, if you've started back in the Puyen Valais, your body is conditioned for these mountain ascents. And for me, the more difficult part of any of it is the descent. Mm-hmm. I can, I'm a billy goat. I can go up all day long. It's coming down, which is, is much more difficult for me on, on the body. But going through 
is it Vieux Soliac? The old Soliac? Yeah, Soliac. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what, I, I've run out of words. It is something incredibly special. It is, again, one of these little villages that is built into the side of the cliffs. And you're right there walking past them, even better preserved than what we saw um, in Saint-Sulpice. And you've got the view down to the valley floor. And we did this in September last year. So the changing colors of the forest below you. What I don't know the name of the castle that's down in the valley that you're looking at at that point. Yeah, the chateau there. It adds a, a really nice distinctive element to that view. When you're on the river, you don't even know it's there. Okay. Um, so when I was there in 2021, I had no idea there was a chateau because we were at river level. We never saw a chateau. So the next year, I'm like, where did the chateau come from? <laughs> it is a beautiful element of what you're looking at with just the forested valley and the river running through it. And you're up in the cliffs and the cliffs are above you. You're sort of walking at midsection in the cliff and it is indescribable. There's a reason it's the cover photo for my book. It's I believe it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Just looking back upon it. And that's for me, one of the most amazing views of the entire walk is as you are leaving Saliak, turning back around and seeing the entire cliff village behind you, the valley beneath you, the full sprawl of the cliff side unfolding around you. It's marvelous. There was a place for sale. <laughs> I looked at that. I'm like, how special would this be? It was right on the route there in the old village to be able to open up a jeet right there would be spectacular. It had an old wood burning outdoor stove, had a picnic table area. Yeah. My mind went crazy of, of how special and wonderful that would be to welcome walkers and pilgrims in this special place. That would be amazing. I can't imagine what the upkeep involves, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you continue on and you're heading back inland again. So similar formula again to the previous day. The big thing on the interior of this stretch is there's actually an open air museum. It kind of comes out of nowhere. You're walking through uninterrupted sections of the costs, no homes, no villages. And all of a sudden, this open air museum that tries to preserve a snapshot of life in the 19th century here. I did not go. I it's tough timing, but I haven't been next time. Yes. <laughs> and there will be a next time. <laughs> There's always another stretch and another chance. And yeah, I've, I've had a lot of times when I walk through and the timing just doesn't work out because of the opening hours, but it's a neat element to have in the middle of the walk. But then you continue on towards Cabaret. And when you see Cabarets out there in front of you, the descent down into town, and again, you've got a chateau, you've got the river, you're descending after the spectacular day on the trail. You really feel like you've had the best day that you could ever have out there hiking. And Cabarets, I really like Cabarets. It's different. It has a different feel because it's bigger than, or there's a lot more going on there probably due to the caves that people come in for. But I like it after you've sort of been out in these smaller little villages with not a lot going on. And, and that has just been wonderful and lovely to have a little bit more as you enter into cabarets. 
is fun as well. It's just a dynamic change there. Yeah, it doesn't quite have the coziness of some no. of the other places because it is just organized along the road. Right. And so that takes like a little bit of the charm out of it. It does. But it's still pretty nice. <laughs> it still is nice. And I think that energy there as far as, as different things, there's more people there. So sometimes when you're walking these sections, we walked days where we saw nobody out mm -hmm. on the trail during this section. Maybe one or two people walking the opposite direction, but we encountered nobody all day long walking the same direction as us. So to come into cabarets and have a little bit more energy, there were more options for food. We'd been eating demi-pension, so we had meals, of course, at dinner and breakfast the following morning, but our lunch stash was getting a little low as far as you know, a diversity of food choices of what we were carrying in our packs. So it was nice to sort of replenish uh, some things in, in cabarets. And best ice cream of the trip that we had at the Hotel Le Grotte de Peshmerl. I don't know, French do ice cream very, very well. And that was some good ice cream right there. It has another marvelous bakery. It's outside the center. So if you don't know that it's there, you might miss it. But it's excellent. A grocery store, which we mentioned is a rarity. There's a small one in Marciac. There's a small one here. This one actually carries peanut butter, which is oh. <laughs> worth noting. But then the big thing here that people have to plan for is the caves. So Peshmerel, these prehistoric caves with art, cave paintings on the wall, about one kilometer after Peshmerel. And you've got to make reservations. You have to reserve your spot ahead of time. And so then this becomes like the big logistical consideration when you're walking here is how are you going to approach the caves? Are you going to stay in Cabrera, go up in the afternoon, come back down and then have to go back up that again the next morning? Are you going to try to hit it first thing in the morning? Like, how are you going to approach that? So how did you handle that? So I've actually gone three times. Okay. Okay. Again, as I said, each day offers something that you just can't even imagine is going to impact you the way that it does. And I knew that I wanted to see this had gotten tickets in advance. So it was very easy to go online and, and reserve your tickets. I've never been able to go on the English version of the tour. Me I've neither. always gone on the French version, which has been just fine because they have a booklet in English mm -hmm. that they give you that you can read through before the tour even starts and bring with you on the tour. So I've never felt that I've lost anything by going on the French tour. So don't let that hold you back. Take whatever tour works with your schedule for the day. I've always gone on the first tour of the day because I've just planned well in advance and that one was available to, to go on. And I've always planned a short stage that day. So I didn't want to feel rushed and getting to where I was going, I wanted to really enjoy the caves and what it had to offer, and then have a nice walk to my destination. And that has always worked out well for me. So I, I go in the morning, because that it's only one kilometer from Cabarets up to the entrance. It's right on the route. So whether you go to the Peshmeral Caves or you don't, you're going to go right by the entrance. But it's one mile straight up. It's hard. It's, it's a good effort. I have a lovely story about my friend that I was walking with. She had known about the uh, Peshmer Cave since she was a kid. She had seen something 
about them when she was just in grade school and had always dreamed of going. And she didn't realize that that was part of, of this route. And when she learned that she flew up that kilometer, I was like <laughs> first one in line, even though we had our ticket, she was so excited to see this now all these decades later. It's amazing. There's so many of these places now where you can't actually see the original. You're only going through a replica cave. That's right. That's right. And these are real. And you can feel the history. And they do a spectacular job of, of presenting the interiors of the caves and the artwork and bringing that history. 29,000 years ago, they've carbon dated this too. And it is something I feel very honored to have been able to, to see that that's still available because most of the caves are not available in France for the public to go and visit. And these ones are. It takes about an hour. They'll let you put your backpack somewhere. So you're not like carrying your pack through the cave on a hot day. It's really nice. It's much cooler down there. So that's also a nice little relaxing break. It is cool on a not hot day. You want to make <laughs> sure you bring a long sleeve shirt because it's cool down there. Yeah, but it's worth it. However you fit it in. I've done it at the beginning, the middle of the day. There was one year where we stayed at the equestrian jeet, which is just a kilometer after Peshmeral. They're the people who run like horse tours through the area. So you can go stay there and super convenient. I hate the idea of going, staying in Cabaret, doing that uphill, going back down to spend the night and then having to do it again. Can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'd just try to stay at the equestrian jeet if you're doing it at the end of the day. It's a good option. So that's the end of the third stage. The next is a very, very small stage in terms of how, you know, what I would put in a book. It's only 11 kilometers. And it's kind of a detour because Saint-Cirque-la-Popie is not on the GR651. In fact, the GR651 ends in the middle of this stage as you come back to the Lot River. But it's also viewed by many as the most beautiful village in all of France, Saint-Cirque-la-Popie. So many walkers in this area will make the detour. I'm assuming you made the detour. We did. <laughs> we did. Is it worth the detour? Well worth it. It's definitely well worth it. Why? The Chemin de Halage yeah. is such a stretch of the trail. The descent coming down from after visiting the Peshmeral is a tough one. It's a good long downhill and downhills are, are rocky and those are always tough for me. So to get down to the bottom of that, which takes some time. And in 2021, we went through boozies. You didn't have your guide out yet. So I didn't know about the train trestle. <laughs> and in 2022, we took the train trestle across the river, which was such a treat. But you connect over to the Chemin de Halage. And this is the old towpath. It's then cut into the limestone wall. And you've got limestone above you, below you, and to the right of you. And river right there to the left of you. It's something special. There's no other stretch of walking like it on pilgrimage. It's unique. So yeah, even before we get to Saint-Cirque-la-Popie, it's worth it just to walk on the Chemin de Halage. Absolutely. The carvings into the limestone that have been added over the years. I don't know the artist's name, but that is just really, really spectacular as well. 
And yeah, that is a special stretch. And and yeah, you're right. It's not even to San Cirque Papilla yet. And then you're sitting there. Uh, the lock system is mm-hmm. a beautiful part of that stretch as well. As you watch the boats traverse the lock systems of the river lot at that point, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, that you're walking along. So that's a really fun element of it. And you've got this massive cliff to the right of you. And at some point you realize that San Cirque Popi is at the top of that. <laughs> and then how in the world are we getting up there? <laughs> so one more uphill. You're getting up there the same way you've gotten up on the cliff every day for the past few days. So right. yeah, you're climbing a fairly sharp little footpath, but it's not terribly long. And there's a great village waiting for you. Oh, it is really special. Such a well-preserved place. We have taken rest days there each of the times that I've gone to give a little extra time to visit this beautiful little village. My favorite part of being in in San Cirque is they have these shops, but they have the workshops where the artisans are working on their craft that you can see them working and visit them and watch them and ask questions. And then they have their wares for sale in the various little shops around town. But I loved meeting with these these artists in these different pieces that they were making. It's a great place to spend an extra day or so and just rest and take it all in. You've earned it at this point. You have castle ruins up at the very top. It's a great place to climb up and watch the sunset as it shines down on the lot. Oh. And it is like some of the other well-touristed stops along this route where in the middle of the day, it is completely overrun. But once you get to the late afternoon, evening, it completely empties out. That's one of the special things about staying there as you can see it in its quietness. And that is a bit mesmerizing. As the sun fades and the lights come on, it's really lovely. What that leaves then is the most complicated stage I've ever tried to document in a guidebook because Mm. there are so many different ways of approaching this. And I think a lot of people will break it into at least two chunks because the baseline is about 33 kilometers. This most recent time, I found a way to do it in 28 kilometers or so that I think is actually the best way to do it. I'm very excited about what I've done this most recent time. But there are just so many different ways to approach it. You're on the GR36 in this stretch, and there are some assorted shortcuts if you are inclined to make use of old retired railroad bridges, which I love to do. I love it. <laughs> How did you make this walk from Sensor Clapopi to Kaur? So in 2021, we went on to Vers. Mm-hmm. That was a long day because we ended up for the first time, we were just on a high from this beautiful stretch of the Sele Valley that we had done and we weren't paying attention and we missed a marking because we were just, (laughs) and we followed a very well-established trail, well-trodden trail, which we just assumed was the trail. We missed the marker to go off onto the little deer trail that was the actual route. And when we realized what we had done, we're like, well, this has got to connect. We'll just keep going (laughs) forward. And we were disrupted by a river, which we could not go any further. So then we had to backtrack all the way back that we had come. And we were not the first to do this. So that was a long, ended up being a long day because you have, again, elevation in this section. 
So the first year we stayed in Vares and then Vares on to Kaur. Last year, because there's some backtracking. If you go to Vares, you have to backtrack. Yep. I'm like, what is this about? So in 2022, I'm like, I'm not doing that backtracking again. So I stayed in Pastorat, which cut it short for us, but stayed at uh, Le Relais de Pastorat, which was again, one of those special jeets there. And that had been our first full day of rain. And they had a roaring fire and hot tea waiting for us. There was actually a fireplace in the rooms that we had in the Jeet. So they had that going for us. So that was really lovely stopped with Anne-Marie. And then we went from Pastorat onto Kaors. So that's how I've broken it up. But I look forward to hearing about this new I take your words with a lot of importance. <laughs> I will say, I think probably I've had a top five dinner in Pasteurat in terms mm. of all the Jeet dinners. They do good work there. I was just telling my husband this morning, oh, remember that potato and cheese? It wasn't aligo. It was like a scalloped potato dish that she made that was bubbling hot. It was a great dinner. We sat around the table. Each one of us introduced ourselves. And it was a really beautiful pilgrim experience at the Jeet. They do a really nice job there. They even have a swimming pool. Maybe not relevant on your day, but... <laughs> yeah, they do, though. <laughs> it's, it's a nice thing to know about. So, yeah, this last time, what we ended up doing... So, <laughs> it's so complicated. There's a town that's just off route called Saint-Géry. Saint-Géry is... You know, you can get to it as a half kilometer, one kilometer detour, but you can make it even more of a shortcut if you follow one of the old retired train bridges. You would cross the train bridge. The tricky thing is it tends to be overgrown on the other side. So I'm always looking to pick up a large stick as we walk. And then I bash down some sticker bushes and navigate down the descent. That's the problem with the the train bridges is often the descent is a little bit tricky. But Sanjari is nice. It has the best grocery store that you can hit along the route. And it has a good bakery, a cafe, just all right together in the center. So it's handy in that regard for food. But then the big discovery I made last time is there is a small trail that goes from the back of Sanjari up onto the clifftop. So you can climb to the cliffs overlooking Sanjari back towards the Lot Valley. You are on the other side of the lot from where the main trail is. Wow. And then from there, you can follow a mix of like underused road and dirt road direct to Vers. So now you get to come into Vers, which is a beautiful town and is a detour from the main route, which might be an impediment to some people going there. But it is gorgeous. The Riverside Park, it's fantastic. And then here's the other thing. You don't have to backtrack. That's right. <laughs> you can follow the river onward from Vares. You're still continuing on the north side of the river, and it is mostly footpath until you come to another retired train bridge, and you cross back over the lot on the train bridge, and now you're on the Riverside Trail on the lot, which soon intersects the GR36. You shave off even more kilometers along the way. It's good, easy walking, and you feel... Quite content with yourself, or at least I did, because not only was this good walking, not only did this get us access to food at multiple stops along the way, it was also the shortest possible way to do this walk. Wow, that sounds fantastic. It sounds great to be on the other side of the river as well, to see it from a different perspective. 
It's really nice. I'm very excited about it. The, the main issue is that, you know, some of it is unmarked, right? Like this is not the official route. This is not a route in many places. You are kind of freestyling. But if you are comfortable with GPX tracks in particular, then it can make it very manageable. The trickiest part is the getting off of the train bridge going into Sanjeri because not everyone's going to want to have to navigate through the sticker bushes and it can be, you know, pretty uneven, uncertain footing as you work your way down. You know, you can grab onto trees to make it more manageable, but not everyone's going to want to do that. Right. I love a good train trestle. It's so good. You inspired me to do that. <laughs> you're standing on the middle of the lot. You're staring in both directions. You have the cliffs overlooking you. I mean, it's just, it's a view that you don't get otherwise. Right, right. No, very special. I was excited. I had heard rumblings of it in 2021 and that you could do this, but I didn't know where. And then your guide came out and it was a no brainer. We were absolutely, and we did in 2022. And it was, it was a really special fun part of our journey crossing the river that way. And you connect with the Shemenda Halaj right there. So you, you miss nothing. Yeah. And you hit boozies on the way back. So that is new for you, which is a great little town to stock up as well. You've got some cafes and little markets in, in boozies that you can get some stuff if you need to. For the final stretch to Kaur, did you go along the river the whole time or did you go up over Mount Sansir? I stayed along the river. <laughs> I did <laughs> both times. You know, there wasn't a lot in my mind that was necessarily spectacular about this final approach because I didn't take the mountain route. I stayed along the river. It's a nice path. Mm -hmm. It was a great time for me each time. It's been the close of my Camino. I was ending in Kaur. So it was a great reflection period on the trail. It wasn't particularly difficult. It wasn't particularly stunning. It was just a great time to reflect and an easy walk into Kaur. And then Kaur, of course, is the excitement of the big city and what that has to, to offer, but also the excitement and the sadness that for us at that point, it was over. So it was a very reflective, it's always been a very reflective part of the journey for me, that final stretch into Kaur. To wrap things up, what are the one or two biggest highlights for you in Kaur? Oh gosh, the Pont Volentre yeah. is spectacular. We've always stayed right across from there at the youth hostel, the International Youth Hostel. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we've stayed there. There's so many great accommodations, but they, ha they have a great location there right across from the bridge. They have an outdoor cafe, a deck, great breakfast in the morning, but you can sit up on that deck and watch the sun go down over the bridge or over the mountain with the bridge right there. It's got great views. And then I've always loved going across the bridge to check out the trail on the other side that I have yet to start but I see that it goes up, 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 but that's always very exciting. So definitely, and of course the cathedral, you know, as we come into town, we've always stopped at the cathedral. We get our stamp and our credential and spend some moment of reflection in, in the cathedral. So those are two of the high points for me of, of cars. We haven't spent a lot of time there. It's always coming in and then leaving out the next day to catch a train back home, back, well, back to Toulouse and, and then on home. The cathedral is just really unusual. Two big domes in the middle of it. It's a kind of a strange feeling, but it is stunning all the same. And 
has a lovely cloister attached to the side. And yeah, it's definitely a highlight. Well, we made it. And I don't know about you, I am feeling like the Sele Valley High. Just having talked about it for an hour, I think I'm going to carry this the rest of the day because <laughs> it is marvelous to walk. And even just reflecting on it, it makes you feel so good. This is such a spectacular walk. Well, I hope I did it justice. I oh yeah felt a big responsibility because this is such a special part of the trail. And I am very enthusiastic about it. I'm sure I use the same superlatives too many times, but it is such a special, special part to walk and to experience because it's more than just walking it. You really feel like you're part of history as you go through these ancient lands from the forests to the cliff tops and back down again in the valleys, the sites, the villages, the hospitality, the food. And because it is so isolated, it offers something special. It's really a life-changing portion of the trail. Maureen Cashman of Canberra, Australia, is the author of Charlie and Me in Valparadis, How My Dog Learned to Bark in French, and the Roland Medals, both of which have Camino connections. I'm thrilled to be able to talk with you. I was so excited to get to read your book when I discovered it. And I'm excited to hear you tell the story again in this format. So let's start with the obvious first question. What led you to Espanyac saint Eulalie? Well, I was refreshing my French at the Alliance Francaise here in Canberra. And my teacher had been on a walking trip in the lot and she came back raving about it. And so I organised a little group of people to go and stay in a farmhouse near Soliatsu-Sele. And when we got there, it was summertime and the fruit trees were just bursting with fruit and the foliage was luxuriant. And I decided that I would post myself to France and my little dog. And so I started making arrangements to do that. I hadn't actually been to Espagne. I had seen it from the Falaise, the escarpment overlooking the Sele Valley, and it looked absolutely beautiful. I wrote to several places in that area. And the mayor, Martine, wrote back to me and said, you don't want the jeet that you said that you wanted, you want this other one. <laughs> and so she, in her inimitable way, decided what was good for me. And so I ended up in the restored nun's room of a restored Augustinian convent, a 13th century convent. And that's where I stayed for three years. For three years. And what time was that? That was 2003 to 2005. A few things have changed since then, but not as much as you might have <laughs> thought, partly because it, the whole village is classified as an historic monument. So all the facades have to be authentic to the period that they were built in. You can't 
build some monstrosity in the area. You you have to keep with the architectural style. How do you describe Espanyac to someone who has never been there? Ah, well, <laughs> how long have you got? <laughs> it is an exquisite village. It dates from the 13th century. In fact, it dates from before that. It was named after a Roman general, I suppose, who named it after himself, Hispanus. And in that village, there are Roman remains of Roman cisterns there. At the time that I went there, I think the things that struck me most were the landscape, the architecture, and because I lived there through all the seasons, the different effects of the seasons, the wildflowers in the spring and summer, the storms that can be quite challenging, the escarpments on each side of the river, which are called falaises, and they're limestone escarpments, so they're shot with beautiful colours. The, the wildlife, there is sanglier in the forest, there are deer and uh, lots of rabbits, and then there's the agricultural part of it where there are sheep and there are also crops for fresh fruit and vegetables. And the people, I think, are probably the thing that, that sticks in my mind. I still go back as often as I can. I haven't been able to go back during COVID times, but I'm still in touch with people. And Martine, who was the mayor when I was there then, is still the mayor and still doing good things. There are other aspects of the landscape too. There are ancient dolmens, which are above-ground tombs. I suppose they've been excavated. So they're two huge stones capped by another huge stone, and they were ancient tombs. And there are these little cazelles, which are stone buildings that shepherds used to shelter in and shelter their sheep in, and they're dotted around the landscape as well. I hope I've done justice to <laughs> the place. I want to go back to the people. And one of the things that I so appreciate about your book is that when I'm walking through villages in France, especially as a non-French speaker, it's easy to feel sometimes like I'm walking through almost movie sets, two-dimensional places. I'm missing out on a lot of what's there. And your book opens that up. I understood Espanyac in a fundamentally different way by getting to read your stories about your time there and about the people there. What kind of people live in Espanyac? Is it people who have been there for generations? Is it retirees? Like, who ends up there? Well, the permanent people that I knew were some people whose primary residence was in the village and they would go away, say, during the week or even for their whole working lives and then come back. The people of working age were employed in 
other municipalities or in the SNCF or the EDF, which is the electricity department. And some people spent their working lives in Paris. There, there seemed to be a number of people who were employed in hospitals in Paris, which is seven hours drive away. And then they would come back for the holidays. And when they retired, they would come back to their ancestral places and live there permanently. There were a lot of old people who I became very friendly with, and several of them sadly have died since the time that I was living there. And they had lived there all their lives. They'd been to school there. The school was closed in 1967, so people had to go away from there to school. So it was a mixture of people, retired people, people who went away to work and came back but regarded the village as their home. There were farmers, not very many, and then there were people who lived off their own properties, grew their own vegetables and had their own chickens and so on. Population wasn't huge. When I was there, it was about 67. It's now 90. And in 1792, when the villagers of Saint-Eulalie bought the buildings that had been vacated by the religious, after the revolution, it was 300 and it grew to 450 in the mid-1900s. It will probably, I would think, stay about 90 because of the demographic that I describe. And you can't build nasty houses <laughs> there. <laughs> if you want to live there, basically you have to restore a ruin some house that's already fallen down. And that's one of the reasons why there are so many foreign people who make their homes there. I didn't mention that. When I was there, there was a Belgian couple, a Dutch family, me, of course, and a German couple had restored a house there and an English couple and the general view was that it was the foreigners who had enough money to be able to restore the buildings, but they had to restore them so that they were like the buildings that they restored with their turrets and their, their little towers and the epis on, on the top of the buildings, the corn stalks that you see all over the place in that region. Even down to that level of detail, they have to follow through on that. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. What was it like for you integrating into such a small and established community? Was it easy to make connections? Yes. When I first arrived, it was the middle of winter and there was snow on the ground and all the volets of the village houses were shut. And I and my dog went walking every day and met nobody. But as soon as the first 
trace of spring began, people started coming out of their houses and they knew who I was because I'm sure Martine and the rest of the municipal councillors told them and they were extremely welcoming and they were very happy with, well, my French wasn't all that good when I first arrived, but they were very tolerant and so that was easy. The other thing was that not very long after I arrived, they had the repas chasse, which is the hunting dinner, and they held that in the Salle de Fete, which was under the nun's room where I lived. And so I suppose they had to invite me because otherwise I wouldn't have slept. And they invited my dog as well. And so that was my first social event. And there were a number of social events during the year, traditional events during the year. And I was invited to all of those. I think that one of the characteristics of people in that region is their respect for other people and their interest in other people. There were times when I was lonely because I was there, obviously, by myself, except with Charlie, the dog. But everybody took an interest in me and him. And I think another aspect of it was that because the Mary was my landlord, all the things that I needed, I had to convey through them. So there were a team of people on the Conseil Municipal, the council attached to the Mary, and they all had different skills. One of them would go around repairing things that needed repairing in the sheets. One of them was a school teacher near Albi, and so he came back on the weekends and he was able to help me set up my computer. And a couple whose ancestors had been in that village for generations gathered wood and they supplied me with the wood that I needed for my wood stove. And so I think everybody was there to help not just me, but to help one another. If someone needed their grass cutting, someone would bring a tractor and <laughs> and cut the grass. It, it really was a very special place. I used to describe it as like Brigadoon, so that every time I visited after I stopped living there, it would all come to life again. For me, I'm sure that life went on and they forgot all about me when I wasn't there. But when I came back, it was just the same. You mentioned the community gatherings, and that's something that stood out to me in your book. It's something that jumps out at me when I'm traveling through village and small town France, maybe in part because in the United States now, we are so individualistic. So many Americans don't even know who their neighbors are. And yet I constantly see French folks gathering together in different combinations as I pass Mm. through these villages. So what are the different kinds of community associations, activities, traditions that you were privy to? Well, I think one of the things about 
rural French people. I don't know about city French people that much, but in the countryside, there are lots of associations. There's the hunting association, the football association. In Espagnac, there were Les Amis d'Espagnac Saint-Eulalie, who were friends of the village. And, oh, well, there was the association of Saint-Jacques de Compostelle, which is the Camino Association. And each of them celebrates in usually by having some meal together and then they'll get a local band, a local accordionist to play and they'll dance. There are lots of different associations. And as I said before, I've got involved in all of their celebrations because they usually had their celebrations under where I lived. <laughs> I think that's the way rural communes work too. You can't do everything by yourself. You have to rely on other people. And I think also if you didn't participate in the local activities, you'd probably live a quite a lonely life. And the other thing about that community is that so many of them had ancestral ties to the place. So they knew each other's families and they probably knew a lot more scandal than I was ever privy to, but I was never interested in scandal. And I think that people in that community too also respected one another's privacy as well as the communal aspects of the society. Food and drink is obviously a highlight of the yeah. region, and that's true for walkers as well. I think one of the things that draws a lot of pilgrims to this area is that it is consistently exceptional meals that you yeah. yes. enjoy along the way. And you mentioned that you attended a lot of dinner celebrations, and of course you were exposed to other food and drink along the way, so... Share a few suggestions. What are some of your tips about things that walkers should keep an eye out for when they're walking through this area? One of the things that's easily available at markets and so on is the palla, which of course is Spanish, but the lot is in that Occitan area, which also includes Basque countries. So there's a lot of cultural influences shared there. In my book, I describe how you make a salad quesinoise, which is a lot of lettuce and echelots and jessier, which are gizzards, mm. <laughs> duck gizzards, and duck breast and foie gras and walnuts. That's what goes into a salad quesinoise, and I really loved it. There's another local dish which I'm a bit timid about called Aligo, which is a sort of paste <laughs> of <laughs> potato and cheese, mm -hmm. and it's very viscous, and I'm not quite sure how you eat it. I think you probably eat it with bread, but I didn't have very much of that. There's a lot of lovely lamb because the lamb, I'm afraid a lot of this is non-vegetarian for any vegetarian listeners, one of the things that I found when I first went there was that 
to try and be vegetarian was not a very good idea because you wouldn't have a social life. But <laughs> but you can be vegetarian there too because there's lots of fresh produce and if you're not vegan, there's lots of cheese and bread. The lamb is bred in the district and it's organic and the sheep there are called mouton or lunette because they look as if they're wearing sunglasses. They have these <laughs> black eyes and black ears. And I'm afraid they're slaughtered quite early. So the lamb is very succulent and sweet from the herbage that they eat. Did I mention foie gras, which is <laughs> basically fat liver from duck? And there's a lovely cheese called kabiku, which is a little round, I think it's sheep's milk cheese, and that is really quite delicious. You can get truffles if you're prepared to pay for them. And then there are all the sorts of things that people eat with their aperitifs, like the saucisse and the saucisson and olives, and, and there are mushrooms in season. So <laughs> that's probably enough. <laughs> That'll keep people busy. Yeah. Oh, yes. One other thing that I discovered, which I can't get in Australia, is pantard, which is guinea fowl, which is often cooked with prunes or prunes and lentils. And it's quite delicious. And I don't know why we don't do something about pantards here in Australia, but there we go. And confit, confit de canard, which is made by a very long-winded process, but it's absolutely delicious. It's basically preserved pieces of duck. A lot of duck. A lot of duck. <laughs> How do the villagers in Espanyac feel about pilgrims? I had to think about that question because... You see, the pilgrims just come overnight. When I was there, you couldn't always rely on getting a meal because it was run by a little private enterprise and sometimes they'd just go away for the weekend or, you know, <laughs> go and do something else. So there wasn't a terrific lot of contact between the residents and the pilgrims probably just because they were passing through. And I don't think I was ever in a conversation about pilgrims. I think I might have mentioned to you in our emails that I didn't even know about the Chemin de Saint-Jacques before I came there. But I learned about it because one of my neighbours was on the association of Saint-Jacques and at one stage, she mounted a sort of exhibition in the Salle de Fete, but that was sort of historical and it was about objects rather than about why people walk or what their experiences are. I think probably it's true to say that the main interest that the village had in pilgrims was the fact that they stayed there in the tower and in the dormitory. Did you have something in mind when you... 
I just sometimes wonder if it's annoying to have this wave after wave after wave of people coming in and taking up space in your village. I wondered if that's a frustrating thing to have to live through. It's certainly not in my experience, no. There were a lot of other visitors to the village too because it's such a beautiful village that people have it on their itinerary. And I really couldn't say that there was wave after wave. It was all very sort of quiet and relaxed. And people who are walking on the Camino or on the Shaman, they have their own agenda, which might be walking in nature or it might have a spiritual element to it. And often the people that I spoke to when I was walking around and I'd come across a pilgrim, they'd just want to know how far it was to the next stop or if they could get a meal there. There wasn't any integration, really, (laughs) but there was no antagonism. I think that they were simply welcomed. Good. Yeah, that's consistent with my experience. Yeah. You were living in Espanyac and trying to write one book. And as we read the book that you did write, you are talking about that challenge, trying to hammer out that book. And instead, you end up writing about Espanyac. So why did that prove to be an easier or more important story to tell? And what exactly are you trying to convey through Charlie and me and Valparadis? Well, as I describe in the book, going there was really the highlight of my life. It was so different to anything that I'd experienced before in terms of the landscape, the community, the sort of celebration of life, I think, that that village represented to me. The welcome that we got, the warmth of the relationships, and it was also, I think, something that I didn't have any responsibility for. It was just a beautiful thing that happened in my life And it was easy to write about it because everything about it was pleasant. The book that I am still trying to write, I'm making a bit more progress now, had much more challenge in it for me. It's a historical novel, but it also deals with parts of Australia's history, which are not all that laudable. And whereas with the Espanyac experience, I could just talk about what I experienced, although I did do some research, obviously, into the history of the place. And I'm very interested in the history of France and the revolution and so on. But with the sort of research that I have to do for the book that I'm still writing, It's much more challenging because as an Australian, I feel responsible for being accurate and being able to convey things that happened in the past and that are still happening in Australia in a conscientious, honest way. It's not one thing or the other. It's two different challenges and the Espanyac 
experience wasn't very much of a challenge because it kind of wrote itself. <laughs> it's funny. So 20 years on, you're still trying to write the book you set out to write. Yeah. And 20 years ago, you had no idea about Saint-Jacques, Saint-James, Santiago de Compostela. And in the meantime, you've written two books now that touch yes, on yeah. the Camino. Yes. This one said in Espanol, and then your more recent book, The Roland Medals. Yes, it's a fictional part of the winter route mm -hmm. in Spain, but it was inspired initially. I mean, there were several inspirations, but the actual setting of it was inspired by the monastery of Parasado in... Um, Bierzo. Yeah, Bierzo. And when I was walking from Astorga to Santiago to Compostela with friends in 2012, I came across that monastery and it just held so many possibilities for intrigue and history and crime, as it happens, that I wrote that book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get to my real book. <laughs> Well, I'm working on my real book now. Well, I look forward to reading your real book when it comes, and I'm grateful for the other two books that you have written in the meantime, and also to you for speaking with me here. So thank you, Maureen. Oh, thank you very much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. So clearly, if I had to pick one, and only one, route to follow between Fijac and Kaur, I would take the GR651 through the Sele Valley. Fortunately, though, I don't have to limit myself, and neither do you. One option that I've taken with student groups is to walk to Rocamador, then travel back to Fijac, and head onward into the Sele Valley. If you had two weeks to walk in France, though, and wanted to have a great time, or were just really, really bad at making decisions, you could do a lot worse than making a giant loop-de-loop -loop here. I actually did this when writing the Via Podiensis guidebook, first heading south on the GR65 to Cahors, then circling northward towards Rocamadour, and then finally looping back through the Sele Valley. If you really want to shake things up, there's even an alternative route off of the GR65, that bypasses Cahors and detours through the truffle capital of the lot, La Benque, before reconnecting with the route further south. You got options. You will never regret a day spent walking here, on any of these routes. Even acknowledging that the GR65 suffers somewhat in comparison to its two spectacular peers, I'd rewalk that section anytime, with no qualms whatsoever. For now, though, we have finally arrived in Kaur for the last time. And while Carrie hasn't made it further yet, it's our time to head south. And that's coming up next. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Carrie Daniels for slinging stories from the Sele Valley. Thanks as well to Maureen Cashman. She can be found online at maureencashman.com. Her books, Charlie and Me in Valparadis, and The Roland Medals, are available on Amazon. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening, 
back again next week or so. 